this guy's supposed to come pick me up and then we're going to go present. I'm in my hotel room and it's, um, you know, whatever, eight in the morning. And he calls me and he's like, wink, I totally screwed up time zones. We're supposed to be there in 15 minutes presenting. Oh, You've got to get there. And I'm like in my hotel, I thought I had hours. Right. So I'm like, you know, underwear and like, I haven't shaved. And I'm just like banging away emails or whatever. And, um, and so I scrambled, like throw my stuff in a bag and I jump in a taxi. I'm like shaving in the, in the taxi oh, and God. I get there and this guy completely misses the meeting. Um, but I was there in time to go present and kind of lead the presentation. And it turns out they were trying to build a loyalty program internally based on data and then matching items to data and, and all that stuff. So our technology kind of perfectly aligned with that. Wow. And we ended up getting that business and that, that opened the door to PFG. And then we spent the next, basically we spent the next five years, like deploying through PFG and that they became our biggest customer and they're still one of our bigger customers now. Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angela Spazito, co-founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. Welcome to another episode of Whisking It All. We're here today with Wink Jones, CEO of Meal Ticket. Wink, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Angela. Happy to be here. Of course. So um, I guess maybe a good place to start just to kind of set the stage for people who don't know. Can you just give them the, the quick 411 on what is Meal Ticket? So Meal Ticket is a SaaS uh, provider of sorry SaaS solution provider of software for the food service supply chain. <coughs> we have uh, solutions that we sell to restaurant operators, food service distributors, as well as food manufacturers. It ranges from uh, back office solutions like inventory management, um, financial uh, data management, uh, trade spend management, data management for distributors, and then ultimately a data product that um, manufacturer um, and uh, suppliers use to um, find market relative rel relevant market data for the products that they sell. Nice. And I guess maybe just to maybe take a, a few steps back, I think it's always interesting to understand like how people got where they are today. So where, you know, I'd love to hear the Wink Jones story, right? So how did you get into the tech space? Yeah. Um, so if you, if you want to go way back, uh, I was, um, I spent most of my twenties, um, as a raft guide and a kayak instructor. Uh, okay. I, I live in Idaho. I grew up here and, um, spent a lot of time in my, in my boat and ultimately ended up doing international trips where we would take clients overseas for a couple weeks at a time and then kind of show them the world, uh, through, through a kayak or through a raft. And, um, and a lot of times those, kind of, those uh, clients were kind of um, you know, upper class rich guys that uh, we would get out on these trips. And I eventually had a, uh, one guy that I met and did a few trips with. He said, you know, as soon as you're done with you know, messing around and you want a real job, let me know. Um, and so over like eight years, I, I finished my degree. I was a slow learner, uh, did a lot of sporadic um, correspondence type of courses and finished up. And then I, and I, you know, and then I got married and I was like, okay, I'm going to get serious. Uh, gave my friend a call and he got me a job at a startup in Boulder, Colorado. So moved there. This was 2002. Um, started as kind of a customer support guy and then worked my way up to um, operations manager. And then ultimately we sold the company about three and a half years in. Um, and when we sold the company, we had some investors that were pretty happy and decided to form a, a small venture and, um, and seed fund to do a lot of the same type of activity. So I ended up over, you know, from, for about five years, uh, worked as a seed investor, but really I, I was an operating partner within this small fund. And so we would invest in these little companies and then I would go to work as a management uh, member. So I, I was, I ran marketing, I did um, operations, I did finance. I just kind of did a little bit of everything at really early stage companies. Mm. Um, and so I got a really great view of like all the things you can do wrong. Um, <laughs> because there's just so many ways to go wrong in early stage startups. Uh, and so had a really good experience, learned a ton. And then um, right around 2011, well, we moved back to Boise, where we're from um, uh, a couple years before that. But in 2011, the fund had kind of run its course and I was looking for my next thing. And I got introduced to um, my current partner, his name is Brian Conrath. 
um, and Brian was looking, Brian had actually just finished Techstars with Meal Ticket as sort of an incubator. Oh, um, nice. And he was looking for someone to come in and help run the company. He was, a, he's a technology guy. Uh, he got connected with me and, and you know, I, I basically agreed to join up with him and, and help build the company from there. And then the you know, rest is history. Wow. And I guess maybe just to kind of go through that, that initial experience, first of all, it's, I think there's a lesson there and sometimes it's not just what you know, it's who you know. So being in the right place at the right time, getting that opportunity to that, you know, first job, like as you said, um, is, is probably quite important, but I'd love to maybe get, shed some light on that initial experience of maybe going through an acquisition, right? So if I'm not mistaken, I think it was, uh, I was doing some research online. It was a kind of a, um, uh, Imaging three, uh, cha- it was champion imaging, I believe it was, and um, something what, was that what I found? No, that, that, was, no? A, that was a difference. That, that was technically my first startup. That was a oh, that's your first startup. Ah, okay, yeah. okay, because yeah, it was around the same time. So I was like, okay, 2002. Okay, so yeah. t- tell me more about that. So I'd love to hear sure. about that experience and then just like any lessons in kind of like the, the acquisition side because I'm sure there's a lot of people curious about that. Yeah, so the company, um, that we that I moved to Boulder to work for is called Net Identity. And it, we, um, the founders of that company had bought in like 1997, 98, they'd gone through the phone book and bought as many domains as they could. And so they owned, they owned like smith.net and jones.org and they had like 40,000 last name domains and we sold, um, we sold email addresses. So you could get, you know, uh, wink at jones.com or right. you know, whatever, right? right. Um, <clears throat> nice little business, didn't require a lot of people wasn't growing much, but, um, we ran that for, you know, I ran that for three years. Um, and we, we just weren't growing the business a lot. We looked, we found a couple buyers that were interested, um, ran a process and then, you know, a process with a banker where basically we had three or four suitors come to the table, hmm. they bid on the company and then we picked the winning bidder and, and then moved on. Um, I explained that in that way, but it was a very long process, right? So going through an acquisition does take a while, especially when you're on kind of a, you know, it's, it's one thing if somebody comes to you and says, I want to buy your company. It's another thing if some, if you're going to market and saying, I'm going to run a process and try to find a buyer that takes a while um, got it. because you've got to get everybody that you, I mean, the, the banker's job is to get everybody to the finish line at the same time and then have competitive bids coming in. Exactly. Right. So it's like when you're buying a house and the realtor is like, you know, realtor wants multiple bids and they can drive it up and blah, blah, blah. Um, so we went through that whole process and, you know, it was, it was really, I mean, for, for me, it was fun. I was, you know, 29 at the time. Um, and my first experience with, you know, real startup of going from like, you know, whatever, five people to 10 or 15 people and then having a buyer who was a public company, companies called Two Cows, which is based in Ontario or Toronto. Yeah. Right. Um, still there. And, uh, they found they they were an internet services provider and this became kind of a, a nice package of uh, of uh, you know, customers and product that they could slot into their portfolio nice. um, they didn't really need me very long not more than a couple months and so i, I quickly took my exit package and, and uh, took a hike after that that's awesome sounds like the best of both worlds acquisition and not having to stay through too long yeah. <laughs> and, and and um i gotta ask you this and this one might be a bit more personal but a lot of the founders that i chat with that ha- that have had successful ex- exits i always like asking them how life has changed you know maybe after that exit uh, because I, I think the answer is always not what you might think it to be so i'd be curious just to hear your quick two cents like how did it affect your life let's say you know overall like it, yeah. What things changed? What things didn't? It's a great. It's a great question. And you know, I'll say that for me, being a pretty junior, not junior, but like not an early employee there, I didn't have a ton of equity. I didn't make life changing money at that time. Okay. Okay. Um, it, it allowed me to pay for school, which I still had some school debt sitting out there, and that helped. Okay. Um, it definitely, you know, as a 29 year old, it got my. I guess I was 30 at the time I sold it. Um, it helped me get my footing so that I could kind of be confident in the next step. Um, anytime, you know, so, so I guess, you know, a couple ways to think about it. Financially, it's always, it's great. Right. But, um, it, no matter how much money you make in a, in a transaction, it's never really enough unless you're, you know, a, a giant transaction. Um, and so I think more importantly is kind of setting up that, that event as a stepping stone for the next event. Um, and so in my case, the next event was all of a sudden we had a bunch of investors of this company that were flush with cash from this deal. They were happy. And they were like, okay, you know, tell us what's the next thing you guys are going to do. So it was a really cool opportunity to go 
okay, now I've got, that actually helped kind of jumpstart my network of people that now know me as a professional that I can rely on and lean on next time I wanted to go, you know, do something interesting. And I ended up actually hitting up a lot of those guys five years later when we started raising money for meal ticket. So um, I, I ended up having a, um, a bunch of seed investors out of Dallas that were part of that original net identity deal, um, all from that original same network who you know, knew me and at least knew that I was you know, going to do my best to, to deliver some kind of return to them. That's awesome. And, and I'm excited to get into meal ticket and honestly, we'll probably spend a good, good chunk there. But one, you know, kind of last question I'd love to just shed some light on is, you know, you were on one side of the, 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 you know, spectrum with, with being an entrepreneur and then you flip to the kind of VC side. I'd love to hear a bit about just that experience before jumping more into to meal ticket. How is, how is the VC side of things, I guess, generally and I'd love if we can maybe get into some things that you could recommend, you know, to people listening that are maybe in the tech scene or building up their business. Like what are things they can work on, you know, to, I guess, be more, increase the chance of being, you know, invested in, uh, when it comes yeah. to VC money. That's a great question. Um, and that's also a moving target. Um, right. when I, it, when I, when I kind of switched over to that side, um, the, the, you know, VC back in 2006 and seven was fairly early. Right. I mean, there wasn't or it just wasn't nearly the size that it is now. Um, and so it was very kind of shiny and attractive and um, getting into it. And we raised a tiny fund. So I have no I, 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 my, my experience is, you know, confined to a very, very small fund in a seed environment. But I'll say that um, I like operating much better. Um, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I like, you know, rolling my sleeves up and being in the weeds and like working with people and building something. Um, what I found in the, the VC side of that role was that I just didn't, I just didn't feel like I was really adding value unless I was like neck deep in the, in the business. And, and a lot of times, you know, the entrepreneurs don't want you all up in their business. Right. right, 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 right. Um, and so it's, there's a real balance of doing that well. And I've, and I think what that did for me is it, a, it told me what I wanted to do, right. Which is really, which is operate, like be in the, in the role in the seat running the company. Um, but it also helped me understand, um, the VCs and the investors that I want to work with. Um, and you know, we'll get into it in a minute when we talk about private equity guys, but, um, it's, it's very similar. I've seen very similar good and bad across VC and private equity and any investors really is like when you pick a VC or you pick an investor, um, knowing their work style and knowing your work style is so critical, right? So I don't, I don't want to, invest in, I don't want somebody to invest in me who's going to think that they've got to come in and like hold my hand and run the business for me or, or, or straight up, you know, tell me what to do 24 mm. seven. Like you want, I want an investor who's going to say, okay, we, we know that you're running the business day to day. This is what I know based on my experience. And here's our kind of shared like best practice playbook, whatever. Um, but like at the end of the day, you're the, you're the one in the seat making the hard decisions and, and we're right. going to respect that. Um, and so for people that are, you know, looking to get into VC, uh, you know, that's one story, but, but looking to get investment from VC, I think that's very different. Um, it's the, the dynamic has changed right now to get VC interest. You have to show a, um, a, a, a up into the right vertical hockey stick. Right. And without that story with a, you know, a giant addressable market and a really unique product offering and like hyper growth potential, it's very hard to capture the attention of these guys and yeah. um and that's that's changing uh but you know there's been so much vc money raised over the last five years that there's now just a, um, a demand for deals right so like vcs are looking for that story and they're you know you've got deal generation teams and like you know you probably get emails from investors all the time that are just yeah. auto generated right somebody's yeah. using marketo and just blasting yeah. those things out. yeah um, and so, you know, that to me says that there's more demand for good businesses than there is supply. Hmm. Um, and so I think if you're looking to get into, uh, having a VC investor and, and then, you know, VC versus PE is a different story, but having a VC investor, um, also means that you're going to have a very high expectation of growth that's, that's going to be put on your business. Yeah. And if you're not in a position where you're growing at early stage, it's gotta be hundred percent plus and probably more to be exciting at, you know, middle stage to, to growth stage, you know, you've got to be hitting rule of 40, 40% growth, you know, plus profitability somewhere where you've got to be at least there 
to capture their interest or at least the, you know the ability to get there easily yeah. um, and if you're not in that phase don't lie about it because it's not worth it because they're going to get in and, and they're going to screw up your cap table and then you're going to lose your, your job and your company anyway so i mean it's a it's a it's um and I, and I don't think it used to be that harsh but I, I really believe that's the environment now where it's like if you take that on um you have to know that that's the expected outcome and if it's not like you're you're going to be in a tough spot yeah and one thing i've also found interesting about the seed stage is you know unlike a series a or any any series after that really uh where obviously a lot of it is just pure kpis like you can't hide it's you know show me the arr show me churn show me this show me that um show me growth projections etc what I like about the seed stage or what's interesting, at least the founders listening is that, uh, there's a portion of it that they're really investing in the person, right? That like, that's mm -hmm. the one stage where there's that bet on the founder or the founding team. So yes, it's market size. Yes. It's some level of traction, some level of growth, but, uh, it's the one stage where you could kind of, the story's got more weight than, or the story has a good chunk of weight. Cause it's, it's why you, why now? Like, you know, so that, that's something I think that's also important is, is trying to, um, convince or at least demonstrate or, or tell the story of why you're the right person to do it, which is, yeah. which is true. I 100% agree there. And I, I saw that play out a dozen times. I've, you know, it happens over and over again. And, and I always heard it that like, it, it's, it's an investment in the CEO or the founder first and in the business. And I've seen, I've seen a number of businesses that were good businesses that, that failed because the, the founder was not good. And um, rarely seen a good founder truly not at least be you know mildly successful. I mean, I, and I think that's why like VCs are willing to write a, almost a blank check to a, a great proven founder right. um, that has a good idea. Right, and 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 I think VCs know that the idea will evolve, pivots will happen. So it's like yeah. you end up investing in, in the person, which makes sense. That, that, that's awesome, and it's really cool to hear like that kind of story from your point of view, from from kayaking to meeting that right person, getting that job, then see you know being part of an acquisition, and then being on the flip side of that on the VC side. So now finally the the meat of it, no pun intended, uh, getting to the meal ticket side. Let's get into, first of all, where the idea came from, right? So like, where did that start? So you were, you know, in the VC world, whatever, where did that transition to come where one day you just came up with the idea? I'd love to hear the, the origin of meal ticket. Yeah. So, um, I was introduced to Brian Conrath, who was the, the true founder of meal ticket. Got it. Um, he, he went to Techstars with his partner, um, over the summer of 2011. Um, they, their idea was to build an app that was for restaurateurs to use to do their marketing. So like, you know, we've got to buy one, get one, or we've got a band or whatever it might be. And, you know, we as a consumer would download the app and install it and we would receive this, this content and you could offer like, you know, whatever discounts and coupons and that kind of thing. Right. Um, they went through Techstars with that, with that concept. Um, they came out of Techstars, they recruited me. And as they were recruiting me, we, we started to look at the industry and kind of who they were selling to. And the thing that got really interesting was that during the time when they were meeting with customers and trying to understand the, the, the business, because yeah. um, none of us were food guys, um, they they interacted with the sales reps for those distributors. And they saw these sales reps that are walking in the back door of the restaurant, you know, slapping, slapping backs, <laughs> giving high fives with the owner and the staff. Um, and then they pull out their pen and paper, right? And carbon copy and they're taking orders. Uh, wow. like this and it's 2011, right? And they've got their, they don't have a smartphone. They've got a flip phone, right? So they're flip, they're in their flip phone and they're, you know, and, and, and Brian, I, I remember specifically Brian was describing this to me and he said, you know, there's, there's 7,000 distributors in the U S and it's a $250 billion a year industry. And, and that's how they're going to market. And, and I remember the light going off going, that's a disruptible market, right? Like screw, you know, whatever the, the, the consumer facing thing, you know, that's not going to work. It's like, yeah. let's build something to drag these people into the 21st century. Right. Um, and that was the thesis, like that was the underlying thesis of the business. So we, we quickly kind of scrapped the old thing, um, and then started building, uh, a deal of the day concept where we basically would take in data from our distributor partner, um, and then find from the distributor, like let's find some aging inventory or something they want to get rid of. And let's do a, let's do an email blast and see if we can get, you know, somebody interested in buying. 
And so we worked, I mean, Brian mostly built it by himself um, over about six months and we sent our first deal. And I remember I, you know, our, our first deal was with a little distributor in Oregon and uh, we had we had tater tots and we had um, some meat and then we had some mini, uh, mini corn dogs. And there was like a, a limited supply and they were trying to get rid of this crap. And we, you know, we sifted through their data and we, and we pinpointed like, here are the, you know, hundred restaurants that should receive each promotion. And we sent them out and we got like 60, 70% open rates on the emails wow. and like 30% click throughs. And then we ended up selling, you know, we ended up, the, the distributors sold like most of their inventory just off of these promotions. And we're wow. like, okay, this works, right? This, this is something to get proof on. of concept. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so that was like the, that was the kernel of this whole, of this whole idea. Um, and so we took that and expanded it from there. We, we, you know, really, um, we built it around the distributor and the distributor's data, knowing that there's a gold mine of information that they're not mining themselves. Cause again, you've got sales reps that are just walking in the back door and taking orders. Um, they're not actively selling, they're not looking for penetration opportunities. Um, and so we could, you know, we built analytics around the data to say, you know, show me everybody that's buying French fries from us, but not buying ketchup or they're so they've got burgers on the menu and they're not buying our, our beef patty. Right. Mm. Um, and then we, you know, and then we, we bolstered that whole email campaign marketing concept, um, and then started to you know bolt on more services so that it became roundly this kind of CRM tool that, um, that enabled the sales reps to push deals into their customers' hands, uh, allowed the, the distributor marketing team to create content, distribute content to the relevant people, um, and really like start to get pinpoint and start to use modern technology to do some of the things that other industries have been doing for a long time. That's really cool. It's funny when you're talking about the, 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 the pen and paper, um, I think the restaurant space in general, right. Is, is, is loves pen and paper. We see it on our side, on the whiz side when it comes to inventory and even placing, like you said, the orders to their suppliers, or, uh, you'd be surprised recipe co costing things out on Excel. So Pen and paper, maybe very basic spreadsheets, but that that's super common. And um, I don't know why I had a flashback. My 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 dad, uh, grocery store owner, and, and kind of in that space. And to this day, probably still has a good chunk of suppliers that still come in and do the free oh, yeah. order by hand. You know, there's some the bigger ones have like their their whatever Palm Pilot or whatever you want to call it. Their their you know mobile tablet, um, but a lot of them still do it manually, which. I'm, I'm imagining yeah. that visual. Uh, I'd yeah. love to know from you guys, like in the early days, right? Like, and we'll get to, you know, where you guys are at today, but in the early days, how did you go about, you know, kind of building that marketplace? Cause it's, it's always tough to build, you know, it's tough to build a business period, but you guys kind of had the two sides of trying to get suppliers, but yeah. needing to have the restaurants to satisfy the suppliers, but having, you know, having both sides to work. So I'd love to hear just like how you guys went about that in, in, in the early days. Well, we, we, we always position ourselves as distributor centric okay. because the dynamic in that vertical is, especially 10 years ago, um, there's a very large lack of trust between the distributors and the suppliers, manufacturers, mm -hmm. um, and the distributors are extremely protective of their data. And yeah. so we would, we would go to the distributors. We would, you know, we made lots of promises about the sanctity of their data. You know, it's not leaving these four walls, which are all true. And we still, uh, hold to, um, but we, we really had to like bend over backwards to ensure that they believed in our ability to, to be protective of their data. Mm. Um, once they believe and, and trusted us in that, then they would go recruit the restaurants onto our platform, right? So yeah. you would, you would, we would launch with a new distributor. They would talk about it at their next sales meeting. And then all the sales reps go out and they sign up all of the restaurants. So That's the restaurant would restaurant would get an email and click here to, to log in. And all of a sudden they're looking at meal ticket offers and deals that are sponsored by, you know, whoever this distributor is. Right. Um, the challenge for us was getting to the distributors in the first place. Hmm. And because we were nobodies, right? Nobody knew us and we weren't industry guys and it was very hard to build trust. So I'll tell you a funny anecdote. Um, so, so one of my, one of our first and, and, and one of our biggest distributor customers is, is performance foods. Um, that is, you know, now a large public company. Um, at the time they were still private, but still pretty big. I think at the time they were maybe the fourth or fifth largest in the country. Um, we, we had at that time, we had maybe two little tiny distributors that were still kind of just like pilot stage, but then a friend of a friend of a friend introduced me to another guy who was going to go present to a performance foods house in uh, the Northeast. And he said, look, come along 
and you can you know you can be like our technology partner and you can talk about your stuff and maybe you'll get a chance to like sell something yeah and so i'm so i'm in my hotel and this guy's supposed to come pick me up and then we're gonna go present i'm in my hotel room and it's um you know whatever eight in the morning and he calls me and he's like wink I totally screwed up time zones. We're supposed to be there in 15 minutes presenting. Oh, we got to get there. And I'm like in my hotel. I thought I had hours, right? So I'm like, you know, underwear and like I haven't shaved. And I'm just like banging away emails or whatever. And um, and so I scrambled, like throw my stuff in a bag. And I jump in a taxi. I'm like shaving in the in the taxi. Oh, and God. I get there. And this guy completely misses the meeting. Um, but I was there in time to go present and kind of lead the presentation. Oh, and it turns out they were trying to build a loyalty program internally based on data and then matching items to data and, and all that stuff. So our technology kind of perfectly aligned with that. Wow. And we ended up getting that business and that, that opened the door to PFG. Yeah. And then we spent the next, basically we spent the next five years, like to, deploying through PFG and that they became our biggest customer and they're still one of our bigger customers now. Um, and so I, and I, like I, I have people there at PFG that I've been working with for, um, for 12 years that are, you know, I consider very, very good friends. Uh, so it's just kind of ballooned in this really cool opportunity. Wow. Yeah. For people listening, I think, uh, right time, right place. Like it, it could, it could change your life. That's, that's a really cool story. Um, it's funny. Yeah. We had another guest actually funny enough on the last episode, same thing, right time, right place, kind of, um, taking that, that leap of faith. She, she was, I'll give you a quick story. It's super interesting. They did, uh, where they do, um, healthy meals basically. And they went from not knowing anything, starting with zero locations. Now they have close to a hundred locations and, uh, she was telling a story about a military contract and basically how she was there at the base and like the, the you know, sergeant or whatever the terminology is, I don't know, but the, the, some commander was just like, Hey, we got a big problem here. We got 50 people who are about to get kicked out cause they're overweight, whatever. Can you help? And her thing was just like how she said yes before figuring it out, kind of like jumping off before you have the parachute. And in the yeah. end it, they, they did it, they all passed. And then she, now they have this massive contract. And I guess to, to kind of parallel that here, were you ready to take them on or was it a bit of that jumping oh, off? But no, <laughs> no, we were built, we were building the plane while we were taking off. And it was, there you go. And I mean, there are so many times where that happened and that, you know, you said it, but the serendipity is, is such a key part of success in early stage and startups. Like you just, you have to get lucky a few times and, and then, yeah, you have to like commit to stuff that you're not ready for and just mm. go do it and make it work. Yeah. And, you know, and we did, and, uh, we, again, we got lucky and it worked out. That's awesome. And then any, any lessons there to share? Cause I think a lot of entrepreneurs, including myself go through that, like, Hey, we'll figure it out as we go. What were some like, you know, tips you can give that like, Hey, it's going to be painful. You're going to make mistakes. But when figuring out things as you go, I recommend, you know, X, Y, Z, any kind of like, well, yeah. um, for us to be, for me to be confident in committing to things that we hadn't built yet. Um, uh, I had to, I really trusted my partner. Brian, um, as a CTO, he's, he's a really good, really smart guy. Um, uh, product oriented also like a more of a person, more of a people person than most, you know, heavy engineering guys. Right. So he could actually have a conversation, nice. um, and could, could understand how the customer would use the product. But like, I would come back from one of these types of meetings and say, Hey, okay, we got to go build this. And he's like, all right. And, you know, he, he worked 12, 14 hours a day knocking these things out. And so I think for me to have uh, a guy like that as a partner that, I, that, that we wholly trusted each other and he would trust me not to overcommit um, was critical. Right. And, and you just you're not going to get that level of commitment um, from a contractor. So if you're going into technology business and you don't have the expertise in house, it's going to be really hard to do. Yeah. Um, as a, as a partnership, you need somebody that's going to go way above and beyond, uh, putting in eight hours a day. Um, and it just, you have to both be kind of in lockstep in terms of your, your commitment to the business there. And, and it's really hard to get right, uh, a partnership like that. Hmm. And I'd love to hear like, once you have, you know, this distributor on board, I'm imagining there's a bit of a snowball effect. So what, what, what does meal ticket look like at this point, right? You start off ideas like so, so from Techstars, you find a bigger idea, a bigger problem to solve, jump into it. You finally get this, you know, serendipitous moment. Obviously it's not just cookie cutter. It's probably a lot of ups and downs to make them happy. But once you yeah. do make this client happy and, you know, there, there, there's growth there and obviously that network effect of, you know, growing through their, their kind of sales uh, direct sales channel or sales reps, uh, what happens next? Like what, what, what do you guys do to keep growing? 
Yeah, I mean, we um, once we were able to prove that someone would pay us for this, we were able to go raise a little money, and okay. that helped. That helped because then we could then we could hire more engineers and start building more product, and then that that really did create a snowball. Once we could build more product, we could start to service a broader set of customers. So you know, we went from servicing one warehouse at PFG to servicing 35 within like three years. Um, and then, and then, you know, like that ballooned into 55, 65 now. Um, so, so a lot of that was, you know, we've, we've got to build this feature to go get that customer. And then we got to go build this. And, then, and so it really was like fairly straightforward. Like we knew what we had to build to, in order to go get them on that platform. Um, and then, and then, and then help them with the megaphone, right? Help them with the word of mouth because it, it is, you know, the industry is still considered fairly small and tight. Um, given you know, most of the, you know, $250 billion worth of sales, probably 80% of that is controlled by 500 distribution centers. So almost everybody's kind of familiar with each other. So once you get your name out there and get your word out there, then, then people start talking about you and then that, that snowballs. And, you know, it, in hindsight, it took years, um, at, you know, at times it felt fast and at times it felt really slow. Um, right. and we always, you know, we always wanted it to go faster. But, um, but you know, the thing we found is like everything we're building, they want to use. And that was the key part It's like, we keep building stuff that they want to use. And that's a good sign. As long as we can keep doing that, we're going to keep getting more customers on. That's awesome. And, and today, how many, you know, just maybe to share with the audience, how many suppliers do you guys have on board? If you can share that information. Yeah. So, so, um, we have over 200 distributed individual distribution centers on our platform now, wow. um, we also have manufacturers. There's about a hundred, 110 manufacturers on the platform. Also that, that look at the data product that we built on top of that. So wow. transitioning into kind of our next phase, we, because we had all this data, um, we were able to look at and consolidate data in a way that no one else really had before. And there's forever been this demand from the manufacturers, the guys at the top of the chain. So this is General Mills and Tyson Chicken and, um, you know, whoever else actually makes the food. Right. They, they've always had you know, distribu distribution and food service distribution has always been kind of a black box for them. Right. So if I'm Tyson in general, um, if I, you know, I sell a truck full of chicken wings to a distribution center in Boise, Idaho. I don't really have visibility into who's buying that. All I know is I sold, you know, whatever, a thousand cases to this distribution center. I don't know, you know, was that bar and grill? Was it wing stop? Was it, you know, was it a wing place? Um, you know, was it a, was it an Asian restaurant? Uh, you know, what other stuff did they buy with it? I don't know. Right. So, so as a marketer at, at that level at a manufacturer, it's really hard for me to actually know how to do my job and create more demand. If I don't know who's actually buying the product, um, some level of this has existed in grocery and retail for a long time through scan data and some other services. It's a little simpler there, yeah. um, but the fragmented, fragmented nature of this, uh, this industry has really prevented um, distributors and, and manufacturers from accessing that. So we proposed and we launched um, a, a data sharing platform where distributors would tell us, these are the manufacturers we want you to share data with. Mm. And it's Tyson and it's General Mills and some of these others. And and then, and then we're going to charge them and we're going to share that revenue. So we essentially created a data package. We sold access to the data to these manufacturers and then we split the revenue with our, with our um, distributor partners. Um, again, like retaining our distributor centric view of the world, making sure that they're benefiting from this and, you know, helping to dissuade their fears about the way that we're taking care of their data. It's, it's like, look, we're, not, we're just doing what you tell us. We'll, we'll, we'll put the data wherever you want it to go and it should benefit you. Um, and that's been a, that's been a great uh, success so far as well. That makes sense. And and, and any anecdotes or, or just data you can share on like some of the, I can imagine, but maybe some of the wins that the the manufacturers can get with this data, right? Like I my head spinning with a bunch of marketing ideas, but I'd love to hear if you have any you know examples you can share. There's some um, there's some really good examples there. I won't use names, but uh, there is a rubber glove manufacturer that wanted to know. Um, every, every restaurant in, in a geography that was buying raw chicken from this distributor, but not buying rubber gloves. And, Smart. and so you, so we, we pull that and it's like you know, a couple clicks and you've got that and we go, okay, here's a hundred restaurants, right? They're either buying it from somebody else. They're buying it from Costco, uh, or they're not buying it at all. Right. So like target them, 
and and they they did this campaign and they had you know great uplift on their sales within that and, wow. and then you know it sticks so like those type of um affin- we call them affinity voids or or uh uh matrix voids um those are really successful because you can get really specific and back to like the tyson example like if i want to look at you know if i'm a if i'm a um a hidden valley ranch brand manager right i want to know everybody that's buying chicken wings but not buying my ranch at these mm. chicken wing places right like so clearly opportunity to sell um, and then if i'm smart i'll bundle it up with you know the little cups that they go into and like get somebody else to help me cover the marketing cost yeah um, that's awesome so so that has been super successful um the the um the, the manufacturing uh sales network is kind of constantly changing and so this has morphed from being just that marketing uh, engine to also being a sales lead engine as well. So that now manufacturers come in and buy, buy the data and they mine the data and then they take the data and they plug it into their own CRM, like a Salesforce or whatever, so that their reps know where to go fish. Right. And it's the same concept, but they're just giving them like direct, they look, it looks like Jim's diner isn't buying the barbecue sauce, like get in there and, you know, try to upsell them on whatever. Super interesting. And I wonder how much, because one thing that that's that we've seen on our side, especially in the early days when we we're only focused on, let's say, beverage, so liquor and wine, you know, three tier system, same kind of concept, right? Like the the big brands would want to know from the distributors, they'd understand like case buys and stuff, but they'd want to understand more what's happening at like the retail level or the or the, the venue level. Um, so like you know, okay, cool, maybe X, maybe they sold X amount of tequila, but like. How did the restaurants actually sell the tequila? Were they selling it as a premium cocktail? Were they selling it as like the, the cheap shot to get rid of? Were, you know, like, so how they're disposing or, or using that that item. Do you see that same thing on the food side? Do you see like, is there that interest from the manufacturers to know the how, the definitely. recipe side? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely interest in that data. And, and we're getting close to connecting the dots there. We haven't done it yet, yes. but, but with our, Market Man Edition, um, we have now, we're now seeing some of the data coming through POS that would allow us to connect the dots uh, into the menu, show manufacturers ultimately, like how are these, how are these products being plated, right? Where, where, where are they ending up? Because again, that affects the way that they market, affects the way they sell and affects, you know, who they sell to. Exactly. Um, so there's, there's a very large insatiable demand for data from the manufacturer level. And frankly, those guys in this system, those are the guys with most of the money to spend on this Correct. stuff. Right. And then, you know, you, you touched on market, man. I'd, I'd love to hear like from the meal ticket side, I know there was, you know, market man, as you, as you mentioned that, that you guys, uh, you know, teamed up with and there was, uh, but there was someone before and maybe others that I don't even know. So I'd love to hear like just a bit about that story, like meal tickets grown, getting these suppliers on, like, uh, yep. you know, it's just grown in general. How do you guys think about these acquisitions? Maybe just walk through like a, a couple of these. I think there was, if sure. I'm not mistaken, um, obviously Market Man, and there was um, Trackmax. Was the first that's one. it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, we uh, we in 2020 um, we you know had the experience everybody else did, and um, we're fortunate enough that software was uh, became more important to our customers, and, and we retained you know almost all of our business through that time. Um, but we got to kind of mid 2020 and you know, we saw the opportunity to start um, rolling up some of these technology companies that were focused on the supply chain. And one of the most obvious ones was TrackMax, who we had been talking to, we're very friendly with, don't really compete with, but maybe compete with the same dollar. Um, and track, what TrackMax does is, is um, tracks trade spend earnings for distributors that are basically back end monies that are paid to the distributors by manufacturers. Um, it's a very convoluted, um, like specific uh, right. thing to this industry. And um, I, don't, I won't go totally into it, but bottom line is that the trade spend dollars are often um, most of the profit that a distributor will make in a given year. And basically yeah. it's, you know, it's manufacturers paying additional marketing funds into the distribution layer to get attention on their products or you know, make sure that they're that the distributors stay in business, frankly. Um, and the distributors will, will acknowledge this. That's a significant part of their business model. Um, and so up until, you know, without TrackMax, we're, it's a spreadsheet. And it's the same, you know, like we've talked about a bunch of times already, like you, 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 um, you, you we're basically competing with spreadsheets, right? And so we, uh, the, the guys at TrackMax built a really nice piece of software that's, that uh, offsets the spreadsheet use. 
So I found an investor um, uh, in, a, in a fund called PSG out of Boston uh, that got excited about the idea of putting these companies together. We brought PSG in in 2020, late 2020, to um, take out my existing investors and then do the TrackMax acquisition at the same time. So we did this kind of three-way deal where um, PSG invested in us. We bought TrackMax, um, rolled the two companies up, and then off to, off to the races. Um, Super cool. Really interesting uh, process, really stressful to try to do two <laughs> deals at the same time. Um, we, were, we were very fortunate we did it. Uh, really, you know, we, we ended, I mean, and, you know, I can talk a little bit about in company integrations and acquisitions. Um, yeah, and before that, I had never been part of an acquisition or, or merger. Um, and so bringing in another company under our roof during COVID when everything's remote um, and we're doing this type of conversation with all our right. new employees um, was a very new challenge. Um, we were super lucky with that deal because that company was so um, distributor focused also that we just had a lot of cultural traits that were very similar. And so it was really easy to like, to, you know, to bring them into the fold. We all had very similar outlooks on how to treat customers and what's important. And, um, you know, within, within three or four months, we completely reorged the two companies together and begun rebuilding the, the software to, to integrate together. Wow. Um, so that was a, that was a, that was a really fun deal. Um, and then that kind of got, you know, our, our first taste of acquisition. PSG as an investor is very um, acquisitive with their strategy. They love to do acquisitions that are like bolt-on or you know product extensions or things like that. Um, and so we 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 look at acquisitions quite often now as part of our strategy. Um, within a year, we had found Marketman. Um, Marketman is a restaurant-facing inventory management software that um, that basically pulls in POS data pulls in distributor data and then allows restaurants to manage their inventory, look at their gross profit, order, um, et cetera, right? So um, we, uh, that they ran a process to try to get the best price. We, we ended up the winner um, and we closed that deal at the end of 2021. Nice. Um, different company and almost, I mean, they, they were about our same size when we bought them. So, okay. um, so in, in effect, in the prior 18 months, we had doubled the company with one acquisition and then doubled the company again with MarketMan, wow. um, which was pretty exciting. And then, and then the, the uh, additional complexity of uh, MarketMan having half of their staff in Israel um, wow. uh, was, a, was a very challenging integration. Um, so we're now 18 months into that and 20 months into that. And um, it's, been, it's been a great, uh, a, a great program, a great, um, great group of people. Um, a really good acquisition and, and, a, and a challenging but good integration as well. Wow. Um, so, and, and that's super interesting. I'd love to hear what's the again, if you can share, what's the like rough, you know, uh, headcount uh, right now? Like, are you guys, yeah, just like in terms of like overall in, team? Yeah, in total, we're about two hundred people globally. That's awesome. And, and so, and I got, I, I got to ask, I got to ask you this because you, you touch upon culture. It was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you, so it's perfect. It's as you're scaling and not only are you scaling, you're, you know, you're, you're doubling because of one acquisition doubling again. So you're, you're, you're scaling, but you're, you're acquiring and, and, and things are growing fast. How do you keep, you know, team culture, I guess, alive or how do you false foster team culture, keep the right culture, I should say, um, going through such rapid growth? It's a very good question and it's a very difficult challenge. And, um, my uh, my approach early on in the company was that culture just takes care of itself, and I, in fact, I you know I, I found it like kind of distracting to talk about culture, early <laughs> on and, and even kind of annoying. Um, but but then I realized over time like what culture really means, right? And culture isn't culture isn't like bring your dog to work day and you know free lunches, right? Culture is the way you come to work and the way you approach your job and the way you treat your customers and the, the way you, the way you address the tough trade-offs. And I think that to me is one of the most defining things about culture is within a SaaS business, how do I address the custom requests that I get from customers versus the desire to build something that more people will use. And that to me is one of the defining components of a culture is like, how do I deal with that truly? If I'm Salesforce, I don't, I don't do any, custom requests, right? 
But if I'm meal ticket, I tend to do a lot of custom requests because we're very customer centric and you know we we understand the pains of our distributor customers and our operator restaurant customers. Mm. Um, and so that culture kind of it grew up by itself. But then to your question, when you bring in a, a whole new company that's that's you know not only diverse in its culture but diverse in its geography and right. you know, spread all over the world and like right. mostly remote. Like how do you keep that together and align? And and the tough thing is, oftentimes cultures can clash, right? And um, so so we do we we probably didn't do the best job at first, and and it took a little while to learn that like oh like these guys are still kind of running things very differently than um, we anticipated, and, and so we've got to change a little bit about the way that we um, talk about our culture, talk about how we do things, remind the company of what our goals are. And so that really morphed into um, a continuous reminder of who we are, why we're doing what we're doing, mm. what the what, what the acronyms are that we use all the time, and why they're important. I mean, if I talk about PLG and product-led growth, right? Like some people don't even know what that means and implies, right? And a lot of people don't, in fact. And and and, and for us to expect that someone knows that after only being with us for two months is mm. sort of naive and 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 not really considerate. Um, and so a lot of it was a lot of it's been repetition. But then the other thing is like we also had to acknowledge that um, there's some parts of, of the culture that we acquired that are really important and probably productive to bringing that company to where it is now. And then specifically, when I talk about you know our employee base in Israel, there's a whole lot of that culture that is different, and not just from a work culture standpoint, but just a you know ground zero basis of yeah. like cultural. Um, and so we really worked hard to, to be accommodative to um, to the important parts of that and be respectful of the important parts of that that we wanted to you know not only respect but then also integrate into our overall culture. And so I think that the net of it is like you have to be fluid to some extent. There's some absolute like must-haves, you know, guardrails. We got to we got to be this. But then there's other things where it's like no, that's a that's a good idea. We should incorporate that. That should be part of who we are. That makes sense. And, and where do you see the, you know, in general, right? You guys are going fast, acquisition, general growth, right? Um, where do you kind of see the, the the restaurant industry heading when it comes to, I guess, you know, adopting, you know, all these different types of technologies? Like, how do you how do you look at it, right? Like, you, you're obviously yeah. been in this for for quite quite a while. You got a ton of experience now in the restaurant space. I know you said you didn't start it, but being exposed to it for so long, where where do you see things heading in the near future? Well, I, I, I've come to really love and appreciate the independent um, business owner, whether that's an independent family-owned distributor or an independent restaurant that you know is is growing and entering that mid-market phase. But it, it, it comes back to um, really respecting that that entrepreneur operator um, out there, kind of rolling up his or her sleeves and taking on the world. And um, when I look at our customers and what what i love about our business is being in a position where we can enable those people that we most respect and um because we're bringing there's a there's a there's a concept of like SaaS is really kind of democratizing software for everybody else that can't afford you know to install a a, a, a an erp into their into their system um and i i really take that to heart in that you know 10 15 years ago there wasn't a good solution for inventory management and data management, right. data sharing. You had to be a Cisco or a McDonald's or you know somebody giant to go build your own or afford to like contract out you know and spend millions of dollars. Well, we're at the point now where we can actually bring this stuff into the independence in an affordable way that they can. And, and like this isn't me selling. This is like I, I really believe right. that like bringing that to the independence is so important. And so, so when I see um, giant. Um, you know, roll-ups and acquisitions and consolidation within the market, within the um, the restaurant and the distributor market, it makes me nervous because I think the the blood, the, the real blood, um, and the heart and soul of this industry is within those you know independent owners and operators and and, and uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah, well said, well said. And I guess, I guess maybe to wrap things up, like where where is meal ticket headed, right? So like, what's what's next for you guys? Obviously, you're doing a bunch of cool stuff. You're growing quickly, like done some interesting acquisitions. What's, what's next for you? Yeah. Um, 
it's, it's funny, I can talk out both sides of my mouth, but we've done all this acquisition, but yeah, I'm trying to help the independents, right? Um, yeah. But uh, but no, I mean, you know, we, um, so the reason we did Market Man is because we think we can bring uh, a really good restaurant solution to market through our distributor relationships. Um, and again, we want to, we want to be distributor centric in that we want to benefit the distributor. Uh, we want to, you know, help, help them to the smaller distributors. We want to help them compete with the big guys who build their own stuff. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a big part of our strategy in the coming years is to, um, continue to deploy market band through, through that channel. Um, you know, we, we see this as a, as a meaningful company in the food service space. Um, we've already built a great brand within the distribution layer of the space. Yeah. But, you know, we think there's an opportunity to build a really meaningful brand that represents the independence that provides, you know, a full suite end to end of um, services for restaurants, distributors, manufacturers to manage their data and their software. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we've talked about this before, the, the headroom in this space is enormous because so few of our target customers have even adopted software. I mean, there's still right. so much of it on pen and paper and an Excel spreadsheet. And the opportunity to be out there in front, um, you know, creating an important company during a time where software adoption is just like, you know, going crazy up into the right. That to yeah. me is super exciting. And, and that's really what, you know, that's what we're building towards. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause it's people might look at this and say like, Oh, it was in market man and compare to whisk, but it's like, I've, and I've told you this, our biggest competitor is pen and paper, right? The market's still just primed with pen and paper and Excel. I'll give Excel some credit or, or, or spreadsheets in general, maybe not Excel, but spreadsheets in general. And I think there's so much room for, uh, for innovation and I'm excited yeah. to be a part of it. I'm excited to, to chat with you. And then to maybe conclude um, any, you know, I always like to kind of end off with maybe some, some words of wisdom. Obviously you're an entrepreneur, it's in your blood. You've built something out of nothing, which I think is always like super exciting and thrilling feeling for entrepreneurs. Any kind of last, uh, you know, piece of advice you want to share before we kind of sign off? Piece of advice or just words of wisdom that you want to share with fellow entrepreneurs? Um, boy, I, I hate to be preachy, um, but no, uh, I, I, you actually you've lived you. it. It's, it's look, preachy sucks when you haven't lived it. But like, if you you've done things, you're living it. You've built a company. You're acquiring it. So it's like living it. I think it's it's different when you're sharing experiences versus when you're just like sharing a yeah. quote on Instagram and you don't do anything. You, know? you can see uh, on my whiteboard, I've got written, um, hope is not a strategy. Oh, that's uh, good. I've had that, I've had that written on my whiteboard since we started the company. Every time I move, I, I rewrite it. I make sure it's wow. up there. And it's my, um, it's my reminder um, that uh, you, you got to take action if you want something to happen. Um, action creates information. Information allows you to act more intelligently and ultimately creates urgency and um, sitting back and waiting and hoping that you win the lottery is just not a way to be successful with this. And it, it, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of grinding. It takes, it takes hard, uh, hard work and good luck, but um, it starts with action. So um, I guess that would be my parting wisdom. So perfect, perfect way to end the podcast. Hope is not a strategy. I love that. So Wink, thank you for being here. Once again, we're with Wink Jones, CEO of Meal Ticket. You can go check them out at mealticket.com. Uh, and do you want to share any socials? If you feel free to share any socials or where people can find you um, with, with their audience. So mealtickets.com. I don't, and, well, I don't post much, but uh, the stuff we do post is on uh, Meal Ticket's LinkedIn account. So I, I, I point you there. We do actually post some good content there for, especially for restaurant management and uh, operations management. So. Awesome. So there you have it. Check out the LinkedIn, check out mealticket.com as well. And Wink, thank you for being here today on the Whisking It All podcast. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Angela. Really appreciate being here. Feel free to check out wisk.ai for more resources and schedule a demo with one of our product specialists to see if it's a fit for you.